日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey everybody, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. This is Chris. And so the episode today was actually recorded, I would say, about three years ago. And it's just been kind of sitting in the vault because I knew it was going to be a heck of a job trying to cut it all together because it really needed some editing. As you can imagine, we kind of got off track a few times, but I think I did a pretty bang up editing job, so it's good to go. So, anyway, in this episode, Forrest and I talk about the movie Harakiri from 1962, directed by Masaki Kobayashi, as well as the remake Harakiri Death of a Samurai, which is Takashi Miike's 2012 remake. We just thought the similarities and differences were worth talking about and figured we'd make a podcast episode about it, but that was three years ago, so we can call this one a lost episode. Another reason I'm releasing this episode is because next episode is going to be an in depth examination of seppuku or harakiri. So I figured I'd just kind of prime the pump with this episode to get you ready for the deep dive into seppuku history that I plan on doing next episode. All right, and with that intro, here we go. Hey, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. Yes, this is Chris and Forrest. Am I supposed to say, oh, hi? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. how's it? No, you're supposed to say, how's it? Hey, brother, how's it? Oh, brother, oh, how's it going? <laughs> we do one podcast for you today, bro. We talk about samurai, cutting the belly. Like, do one podcast, bro. <laughs> we do one podcast about samurai, brother. So, they got their swords and they cut people up, bro. <laughs> All right, so、uh, before we get started, as always, in order to get all of our back episodes, you can go to samuraipodcast.com and everything's available there. Otherwise,、uh, subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. I don't even care if you listen, just subscribe. That's what counts. And there's nothing worth listening to there anymore. No, of course there is. You should, li- <laughs> you should listen. Yeah. I don't think there's anything else we need to say, right? No. No, I think we've got to get right to the heart of the matter. All right. So,、uh, today we're going to talk about Harakiri, or, or AKA Death of a Samurai. I don't know if the de- there were、uh, two films, in fact.、Uh, there was Harakiri from 1962, and then there was Harakiri Death of a Samurai, a remake made by Takashi Miike in 2011. And if you haven't seen these uh, movies, uh, well, one of them is like 50 years old, so if you haven't seen it, I don't know what your excuse is.、Um, because we're going to spoil the shit out of these movies, so <laughs> you might want to keep that in mind.、Uh, but, you know, if you want to skip the spoilers, then I can tell you,、uh, you know, what you need to do. Take your iPod and spin that little wheel till there's like 30 seconds left till you get to the point where I、uh, ask you to、uh, donate to Samurai Archives, and then、uh, you're good to go. You won't miss anything.、Um, but, you know, like I said, this is a, well, the original is like 50 years old, so if you haven't seen it, but then again, 
I can't really imagine anyone listening to this podcast who hasn't seen it because that's kind of like one of the top, you know, one of the standard samurai films. But anyway, um, and then if you haven't seen the new one, well, it's basically the same as the original except with some key ch- differences. So, uh, so we thought we would just kind of talk about it. We we watched the two movies with the intent of kind of talking about it, but I didn't actually take any notes. So, going from memory, I probably won't spoil it all that much because I have a terrible memory. So we'll be talking about the uh, original Harakiri and the remake of Harakiri done by Takashi Miike. And uh, rather than go through plot point by plot point, uh, I figure we'll just kind of jump into a general conversation about both of the movies because uh, if you haven't seen it, then none of this will make sense anyway, and it's full of spoilers, so whatever. If you have seen it, then we shouldn't really necessarily need to go through it plot point by plot point. So the uh, original and the new Harakiri... The original being directed by Kobayashi, and the new one being directed, as I mentioned, by Takashi Miike. Uh, new one is isn't really a I don't I wouldn't say it's a scene for scene remake, but it's it, well I guess you could say it is, but there are, there's enough key differences to kind of keep it interesting. Uh, now the general story behind both of these movies, or the general plot line, is that a, a scruffy young Ronin shows up at the E residence in Edo and basically says, uh, I would like to use your expensive courtyard to kill myself because I, I'm a poor lowly ronin and I can't find employment and I, I just need to kill myself. I need to be, be honorable and follow the samurai way and put myself, you know, put myself out of my misery. And uh, we come to find out, of course, that he's actually trying to use the threat of seppuku or harakiri to basically extort a little bit of a payment and uh, so you can leave. Unfortunately, the E-House isn't buying it, and, uh, you know, one thing leads to another, and they decide, we're going to make us, we're going to make an example of this poor, scruffy little Right, right, and we also, also, you know, we should say that, because they had the experience of somebody had previously done that, that he, he had, he'd shown up at the house. Or at a different, I think it's a different residence, but uh, the word got uh, around, yeah. Um, and, and he said that, um. Yeah, I want to use your place to commit suicide. And the Lord at that time had been so impressed with his resolve that he made him a retainer. Now, when word of that got around, <laughs> people being people, uh, they started to get guys showing up, basically trying to extort money. Yeah, like, I, I'm, I, I would like the honor of killing myself in your residence. And they'd say, no, no, that's not necessary. Let me give you a few coins. Yeah, and here's, a, here's, a few, here's a few mon. Get, get out of here. Um, and so when this fellow comes along, they decide to uh, make an example of him. And, you know, really, like obviously, like most films, you, there is a certain degree of suspension of disbelief for the sake of the, for the, sake of the, for the, sake of, uh, the, the film's plot. Um, and, well, I, it, it, it develops that this poor wretched Ronin and was so hard up on his luck. And you learn in very... I mean, both films kind of... Uh, the chronology in both films are different, so we, we're not going to give like a blow for blow. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense. It'd be, yeah, yeah, the yeah. the original though I thought was a little bit better in that it, it kind of kept the mystery going for a little longer. You you don't really basically what happens is after this this poor pathetic Ronin by the name of Chijiwa Motome uh, kills himself unceremoniously with a broken bamboo. Yeah, sword. It, it turns <laughs> out that he'd sold his swords basically, and um, uh, he was carrying a, a bamboo facsimile. And, and and what is again? This is where the suspension of disbelief. For whatever reason, that the E decide to make him kill himself with these bamboo swords, and it's needless to say, messy and <laughs> a very drawn out process. Doesn't really work all that well. It doesn't work. It's it's really a fiasco, basically. For him and for the E clan. <laughs> yeah, for all involved, it's not it's not a pleasant <laughs> afternoon. 
Yeah, and uh, so then, of course, after this happens, a, an older samurai shows up, basically saying the same thing. And so the the counselor of the house basically says, "Well, you know, recently we had this guy." Right, and and we should say that actually the film starts with this older samurai, and you learn through basically through flashbacks as he's tell as the the e retainer is telling him what transpired. You learn about the young samurai who showed up and. Yeah, and you don't really know what his relation is, if any, to the young samurai who was forced to kill himself with a bamboo sword. And uh, in the original, actually, that was drawn out a little more, so it took a little longer to figure out what was really going on, which I thought was pretty effective because, you know, Tatsuya Nakadai, you know, sitting in the courtyard there, sort of drawing it out, was, was uh, you know, drawing out the suspense until finally you find out what, what, what his relationship really is to the young scruffy ronin. Whereas in the new one, all, almost up front, you kind of learn pretty quickly that uh you know their relation which i didn't I, I didn't think was quite as effective but i thought there were other things that were more effective in the new one than there were in the old one which we'll we'll get to but um so i yeah it's assu- assuming that everyone who's listening to the podcast has actually seen it so we just gave a quick you know recap just to kind of if it's been a long time since you've seen the movie but um yeah essentially uh, a young scruffy ronin goes in with the intent of extorting some money and is forced to kill himself and then an older samurai who turns out to be his father-in-law goes in there to wreak havoc and revenge, basically. And, and the films are very similar. Are, I mean, they're very similar. I mean, there are a few key differences between them. Um, and now I'm no like student of film, so I you know I wouldn't attempt to really analyze these these movies. But um, uh, Donald Ritchie in the Criterion. Collection edition of 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 Harikita. Uh, um, Donald R- Ritchie gives us kind of and analyzes the film. This being the first film, and he points out that what this film in a way was was an anti-samurai film. Like it's basically making a commentary on the the cruelty. Um, the, uh, making a commentary on the cruel code of Bushido. The cruel code of Bushido. The cruel, you know, the 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 cruelty of authority and so forth. Um, and it's it, it's actually fairly unique in being an Edo period uh, drama that is set really at the very beginning of the Edo period. This all transpires at around, I guess, 1630 and 1631. Yeah. Whereas, of course, most samurai Edo period cinema tends to take place in sometime in the 19th century. Or, or like the, like the early, uh, early mid-18th century. Yeah, so after it's like been well established, yeah, after it's been after this the 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 the, the Bakuhan system has been well established. Um, whereas this 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 occurs in the years of upheaval at the very beginning, um, because both of these guys had originally been both of the samurai in, in, in question, the father-in-law and the younger one, had been retainers of Fukushima Masamori, who was dispossessed in 1619 or thereabouts. I guess it was 1619. 1619 in the movie, yeah. Yeah, um, who had been dispossessed as one of many of the Tozama, or outside houses, that the Tokugawa gradually bumped off, got found pretexts to get rid of. And so, at that time, you really, you had a, basically a, a countryside flooded with, with lordless uh, uh, samurai. And so the film that draws in, I mean, definitely, definitely in the first one, um, the, the, that, that cruelty, that, that sort of wholesale um, disposition, dis, dis, uh, possession of um, samurai for the sake, basically, of, of securing Tokugawa power 
it is sort of criticized basically in the film. You could say, if you look at the, the old version and you look at the new version, that there are a number of plot differences. And we won't. We don't necessarily need to get into those. I mean, people can, if they if they care to, they can watch the films and and make their own. There are there are a few. Well, at least one very key point that that I thought was was fascinating. The different routes they went with it, which was of course, uh, the state of Tsugumo Hanshiro's uh, sword in both movies. In in uh, the original, he uh, basically admits or says that he he was so prideful that it never even occurred to him to sell his blade for his family. Whereas in the new one, he, he had sold his blade for, for his family, and all he had left was a bamboo sword. And he uses this to... And I don't think he actually kills anybody. Yeah, that's, a, that's another big difference, too. Yeah, in, in the original film, the guy kind of... He kills four people, and he wounds something like eight. Yeah. Um, well, he, he, the, in the new version, he doesn't really kill anybody. Um, he just sort of humiliates them, basically. Yeah, he basically takes on an entire cadre of samurai with a bamboo sword and, and basically bests all of them. Yeah, so I think uh, what's interesting to me about it is, and I think you can make the argument that the the message of the first one was arguably watered down in the second one. The, the anti-samurai, anti-establishment sort of uh, theme was still there in in Takaha and Mickey's version, but it was definitely, I think, watered down, and it was watered down, I think, in a couple of different ways. For example, in the second one, his, the young samurai's father dies of illness, leaving him in the care of of the the elder samurai. In the old one that guy commits suicide as an act of junshi after Fukushima Masamori dies. Right, right. And that's fairly significant because I think to a modern audience that would have made that particular character less sympathetic. Oh, well he committed suicide and he left his and he left his son in the care of uh, of of somebody else and yet it was very significant, actually, to the plot. I think when you think when you when you look at well, what is the film is about? He's, it's, if we're talking about the cruel code of the samurai, well, Junshi was part of it. You know that he killed himself, basically, to fulfill a debt of, of honor, and left his children and left his son an orphan, basically. So I, I think it was a little inexplicable to me why Takashi Miike would have, would have changed that particular plot element there. Um, yeah, the only thing I can think of is, is in the, the main difference being in the original film, he basically left his suicide note, was like, uh, you know, I, I ask you to please take care of my son. He basically foists his son on this guy, whereas in the second one, on his deathbed, you know, uh, Tsugumo Hanshiro basically was like, don't worry, I'll take care of your son after you're gone. So it kind of, a different sort of, uh, I don't know, a different a different angle to it. He, where, you know, one, it's kind of like he, this duty is bestowed upon him by his lord, or his, well, his friend, but who outranked him, I guess. But whereas in the second one, he basically took on this debt of his own accord. You know, I'll take care of your son, don't worry. Yeah, they, uh, some of the other differences, and, and I do think they are interesting, um, the all of the characters, I think, not well, not the E retainers, but 
the 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 sort of your 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 the the um, the, the, the father and and we should mention that that his daughter is present he had a daughter and after he became a ronin he basically became an umbrella salesman <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um, which yeah, apparently lucrative in Edo I... yeah like you know so <laughs> and he's living with his daughter and his daughter has had a couple of offers of marriage by local merchants yeah like the grocer and all like, this uh, right and the the samurai is basically too proud I think that's what it boiled down to. The samurai is yeah. too proud to have see his daughter married off to some merchant. So he asked merchant. his uh, his basically his stepson to marry his daughter. Right, and even though it's kind of patently ridiculous, since his stepson he's making a little bit of scratch on the side, teaching children basically, but he's he's pretty much destitute as well. Yeah. So you see, they that he's basically the pride of the elder samurai, the, the pride of the father. He would rather see his daughter in poverty and married to another samurai rather than pro presumably well off. Um, now th there are some, there is a couple of differences there too. In the end, that's kind of more the the offer of marriage to the merchants. I, isn't that that's more in the second one? Isn't in the first one? Um, he, there's an offer of her to become a concubine. Yeah, yeah, to to uh, 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 some kind of lord. Or yeah, it's kind of yeah. a lower level lord, and 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 there's a go between there. Yes, yeah, so you kind of get this the the idea or the image that it's it's kind of something a little more befitting her than to marry a grocer. Yeah, yeah. but it, it, I think it was a legit offer that would basically it was like well yeah she, she'll she'll eventually end up as a as a concubine so he doesn't want to deal he doesn't want that. Um, so pride, pride is definitely a major theme, especially in the first film. That pride's a major. That's theme. true. He's too too prideful to even consider selling his sword for right food for his family. He didn't want to marry his daughter off to become a concubine. He uh, yeah, he didn't want his yeah he but yeah he yeah yeah. Now I th there I think and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, one of the problems of watching to a remake and the original is so. They, they, blur know, they blur together. <laughs> but if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the first one, the whole scheme about going to a lord and threatening suicide for a little bit of cash is something in the first one that the father mentions in passing to his son in law. Right, right. And in the second film, isn't that something that his son hears about other, from somebody else? Yeah, or, or I feel like he might have been the one to mention it. Yeah. Yeah, that he that he's um, so that, that that that's kind of another. Or or he overhears it. I, I don't remember. Yeah, he yeah. overheard it. Somebody, somebody it was definitely. Was talking yeah, about I it. know it wasn't like in the the original because I know in the original his uh, you know Hanshiro, his stepfather, basically like mentions like, yeah, can you believe that? <laughs> and and it puts the colonel in his son-in-law's head, Colonel Vanadia in his son-in-law's head. Uh, basically, I think um, this. Takeshi Meke's version essentially makes the E family retainers look somewhat less human, I guess. Like they're villainous. They really are kind of villainous. Yeah. Um, for the most part, uh, and it makes the this little this poor destitute samurai family generally much more sympathetic. Mm. And 
I think that in the second film, the modern film, and maybe this is to be expected, but I do think a lot of the themes and a lot of the messages that the original director was trying to convey were sort of lost and watered down in, in that film. Now, I guess, okay, so something that, that occurs to me uh, about the samurai in this, in this respect, the samurai, I think, are almost unique um, in being a foreign historical warrior class or figure that is a household name in the West. I, I think you ask almost anybody, say in the United States, after the age of about 18, do you know what a samurai is? And they're going to say yes. Well, well what is a samurai? Well, they're, yes, they're, insofar as well, they're these, these yeah. warrior guys in Japan or something like that. Yeah, but, I mean, nobody expects them to, you know, people will be, well, you know, they were formed when, the, uh, you know, fighting the the Emishi and the Ainu <laughs> and, you know, these provincial lords needed some way, you know, self-defense and they're going to say, well, they, yeah, they, they were the war Japanese warriors and if you ask them further, well, what comes to mind? What are the associated images to the word samurai? They say, well, the sword, the samurai sword. But death is going to be in there somewhere. That, that's sort of what separates them from other warrior classes in history. Like when you think of knights, you, you, you ask people to, well, okay, what do you associate with the European knight? You might think, well, plate armor. Yeah, and jousting and chivalry. Yeah, and chivalry. Um, you don't necessarily associate. You you might associate clashes and battles, but you don't necessarily unduly associate death. But I think with the samurai, it's a different story. You think, oh well, you know, they're they, they're honorable unto death. That they'll fight to the death. That they'll kill themselves if they dishonor. I mean, it's sort of a trope, even. Yeah. In popular culture. And you look at, of course, the um, like the Hagakure, uh, you know, famously says the way of the samurai is found in death. And I mean, obviously, I mean the Hagakure is sort of a controversial subject, I guess. You know, some people like kind of like to bash on it, but I, I think that really, if you look at the image of the samurai, obviously that must be true. That's you know that they, they're in they're in 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 separable from the concept of death, honorable death, basically. Yeah. And that's really, of course, Harikiri, that's, the, that, that's sort of the, the underlying theme, at least of the first one, is the concept of a system whereby death is promoted, in a way. Like, you, know, you have a system where dying, where killing yourself is sort of a linchpin, really, and it's it's interesting that I, I mean a lot of a lot of Japanese films, a lot of samurai films are just like hack and slashes, basically. Mm -hmm. there, there isn't really any attempt to sort of um, analyze, uh, you know, some of the themes there, like especially the more modern Japanese films, like now, now that the the you know the harsh lessons of World War II have been more or less forgotten in Japan. I mean, you had a, you had a generation of directors at that time, guys like who made Harakiri, Kurosawa, and so forth, who had lived through the Pacific War, and they had sort of seen the um, byproducts 
of a militarized society of a dictatorship you know what, what you know what stems from that you know they would have known many people that went off to the front that never returned um, I, I think that there was a lot of subtle criticism in Japanese cinema uh, for, for the first 10 20 years after the war today not so much I mean, I don't know about what you think, but when I think now of modern Japanese cinema, modern Japanese sam samurai cinema, it's definitely more glorification. Uh, there's not really, it's sort of, a, it's very colorful, you have these sort of, these interesting guys doing interesting things, and it's kind of like a Game of Thrones, but with bamboo spears and paper flags, kind of. It, it, like a film that I actually like, um, for what it is would be Heaven and Earth, for example. Like, I, I think it's a good film. I enjoy it. It's a good film that you can, that non-samurai <laughs> aficionados can be kind of coaxed into watching and enjoying. Yeah. And it has absolutely no depth whatsoever. Uh, you, there, there's no, there's not even any blood for the most part in the film. I mean, it's just, you take as a granted that these guys are fighting wars and that a bunch of people are dying um, but for the most part, there's absolutely no criticism of the system. I'm not saying there should be, but... Um, well, it's just telling a tale, basically. It's, yeah. It's not really... There's no purpose behind it other than to tell the tale. Yeah, it's just, okay, it's a good story. Now, that's fine, but... I, I, I do think, uh, when you, to return to the two Harakiri films, I, I think you see that playing out, though, again, with the second film, that... It's sort of aping the first. I mean, it's a good film, don't get me wrong, but it's kind of aping the first one. And by default, it's carrying over some of the themes that were very, very clearly being transmitted in the first film. It's sort of carrying those themes over, but basically mechanically. Like, it's, well, they... If you carry, if you have the basic plot, well, then obviously, you know, that you're, you're going to have some of the same messages. Well, but see, I, I think the main thing, though, is the fact that in the new one, he, he had a bamboo sword. And I, I think that, had he still had his, his original steel, then, yeah, it would basically, the entire movie, I feel, would be just a watered-down version of the original, as you say. But yeah. the fact that he had a bamboo sword and he basically bested a house full of samurai sort of is... Kind of basically is saying, well, you know, this is your house of cards. You, you, you talk that you're honorable, that you can fight. The wars are over. You don't know what battle is. And I'm just going to school you with my bamboo sword. So, I mean, in, in a way, it's, it's just like a smaller scale lesson. You know, it's not this like the system is corrupt and broken, but the, you know, what, what you guys believe is corrupt and broken. I think it's uh, maybe it's like a smaller scale statement. So I, I think, I think had he had his a steel sword, that kind of would have just really been ineffective, I think, for for the way that the second movie was set up. Yeah, um, I I think that you know I, again, well, one would have to probably leave it to again to, to sort of film scholars to to really get under the hood. Yeah, I'm only just giving my opinion. Yeah, I can't really like. I I, feel I, I just like feel like though in the, the second one, had he had a steel st steel sword though, that really would have made the movie ineffectual because it was already the the deep sort of the the criticism of the entire system it was already kind of watered down in this in the the remake and 
So basically, it would have turned out to be just a watered-down remake, but the fact that he had a bamboo sword rather than, than actual steel kind of made its own point, I thought. Yeah, 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 I guess I could see that. Um. Because when you think of it, that, what, what's more badass? A, a dude with a, a steel sword cutting down, you know, taking out four guys, wounding eight when there's like 30 guys, or, or the dude who doesn't really kill anyone, but he holds his own for a good, you know, five or seven minutes <laughs> with a bamboo sword. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that my own my own preference is that I thought it was probably more powerful the first the first film because uh, for a couple of reasons, you know. Firstly, again, that this that he was a product of the samurai culture and he was of, of the samurai class. He 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 wasn't he would never have sold his sword it, as as we said before. Like it never even occurred to him. Um, I mean, we 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 talked about it in a previous podcast, but. You know, I kind of think if you're if you're a, no matter what your situation, if you're going to go to an an Edo residence of a, a samurai family and basically or a clan and basically be like, yeah, I'd like to kill myself, um, you know, in your courtyard because I'm a scruffy ronin and um, you know I'm down on my luck and I feel like I you know I, I I'm kind of useless so I want to go I want to just die with honor, and you you can't honestly, a hundred percent expect that you're going to just be handed money and told to go on your way. You, you have to you have to understand that there's a, there, there is a chance that they're going to be like, all right, we, we've got a mat all laid out for you in the courtyard, so you're, you're yeah, free to do it. It's kind of like, honestly, what I, 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 when I was like saying, like, you got to suspend disbelief, it, it, it's really such a cockamamie scheme. Yeah, that, I mean... Uh, you almost... It's... You, 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 you're kind of supposed to feel sympathetic... Like oh this poor bastard he was just doing he was trying just to trying do. to save his family just trying to get yeah. some money and in the second film they definitely pound that point over and over again like yeah. because you don't really know much about the daughter in the first film she's there a little bit uh, but the whole progression and gradually they're getting poorer and poorer and more desperate that's definitely a lot more explored in in the the second film as if. Yeah, it looks it looks a lot more terrible in the remake. It looks a lot more miserable. It looks yeah. like a lot more. It looks like a miserable existence. Yeah, that you felt like Takashi really. He obviously felt the need that you no know, that to really justify what this guy was was trying to do. It's almost, yeah, you know, actually, it's almost that's, like that's a almost, modern audience wouldn't really buy it otherwise. Yeah, that's almost like uh, going. Yeah, you know, I didn't even think about that, but that's almost like the. Kind of like uh, in the dramatic scene, you play dramatic music. In the in the love scene, you play romantic music. You're you're trying to basically, you know, twist the audience to. You, you're trying to basically tell them what to feel in a way, which which I don't appreciate that. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely I'm definitely appreciate subtlety. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. It didn't even occur to me until now. But yeah, he really he kind of does because you know, like I said. You're 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 a down on your luck run, and your your kid is dying, your wife is dying of whatever plague she has, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna go pretend, I'm gonna threaten to kill myself, or or pretend to kill my, pretend to want to kill myself in the expectation they're just gonna give me money and go, it, and and it doesn't cross your mind that they might be like, fine, you know, you want to do it, we're gonna let you, do, you're, we're gonna have you do it. So I mean that that is a little disingenuous. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, again, it's like you're kind of. I again, you're supposed to feel sympathetic. You're really supposed to feel sympathetic, but then you're kind of when it when it's all said and done, you're kind of like, well, what, huh. what exactly did you expect? Did you yeah, really what, what think an that, idiot? You know, you really think, I mean, you're like, that's like. Uh, well, I can't really think of a good analogy, but I mean, it's just 
it's a little dumb. I mean, you, you got you. I think at least twenty five percent of you has to basically be be ex, be prepared that you might actually have to go through with it. And, and you can't help. And also, again, I I wondered. It's like really he couldn't like that. That's the best scheme he could come up with. I'm going to go to the E family. I mean, he could have went. He could have myself. I, I think you know you could have been like I'm going to go to uh, outside. I'm going to hang around outside the gambling den. Yeah, just cut down some just, random dude and take his money like that. That would have been a lot safer. Yeah, exactly. Well, see that that's uh, you know I, I guess in a way that's kind of the the sort of idea that that we talked about in a previous podcast about uh, you know perception a uh, perception of reality. Maybe maybe to him it never even it wouldn't cross his mind to. Do something like that, you know. It's like, well, I'm a samurai. This is this is the path that I am on. I'm I'm. This is my birthright, so I should be able to go to to the to the lord of a house and and you know request to use their their foyer <laughs> for my spilling of my guts. And uh, you know, maybe maybe it just never, maybe it just was outside of his realm of experience, or or it's one of those things like that's not something my class would ever do. So it's not something I could actually do. I don't know. One of the absolute linchpins of the film is, of course, the fact that he, you know, on top of everything else, he shows up with bamboo swords. And now, there again, there's some subtle differences between the first and the second. In the second film, he's sitting out there, like, they're all looking at him, waiting for him to commit suicide. And he's like, no, 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 wait, I have a last request. And clearly, clearly, the counselor assumes that he's going to ask for a real sword because you see him start to take oh, that's the right. sword yeah, out of his yeah. ways. Which, which, had he done that, I think everything would have gone so much better. <laughs> yeah, certainly it would have been a much smoother act of suicide. And then he goes on to beg for money. Yeah. And they're like, oh, it's disgusting. You, you know, this is this is just, you know, a, a shameful this display. Is, this is shameful and pathetic. You are yeah. pathetic. Yeah. Uh, um, whereas that that's not even an issue in the first film. Like there's that, that yeah, I think it was up front beforehand. They're like, I, I, I mean, it's I, I forget, it, but I think I think in the original film they were basically like, um, yeah, look at look, he's got bamboo. That that this guy sold his swords. He's got bamboo swords, and basically they they went over that right up front. And I think they might have even been like, let's make him use these. <laughs> and there again, you're you're at, it's kind of your suspend disbelief. Like realistically, would they really be like, okay, you know, this could be a good show. <laughs> this is gonna go well. Uh, I, I I feel see that's the thing is like I feel like the reality would have been like almost like a comedy like okay let's give him these bamboo swords and see what he does not not like we're gonna expect him to actually try to spill his guts with yeah. a bamboo sword yeah exactly you know, I, like, I, we'll just make a big laugh of it yeah know? we'll we'll humiliate him and then throw him out yeah basically um, that's another thing too is is you know it's they they're <laughs> they to them their option as you know the 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 <laughs> Counselor of the E clan, and, and you know the the and and the the clan members there. They it was like okay, we can either give him money and he'll go away, or make him kill himself. And that's yeah, it. That's, that's that's come on, yeah. That's they could have really, they could have taken him it. out back, beat his ass, and hurled him into the gutter. Yeah, know? he's just some <laughs> wretched, dispossessed Tozama Ronin. <laughs> yeah, what, why is it? Why is it A or B? Why is it? Well. We could give him money, but you know, then other Ronin will come up. So we better just have him kill himself. Um, no, right, let's go through this whole sorry spectacle. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, and uh, like uh, that's that's what that's what got me when I really thought about it. It was like, come on, come on, really? 
you, you didn't, there wasn't like an, there was no other option on the table. Like, yeah. okay, you guys go, just take them out back, just give them a good beating, and just throw them in the gutter. Right, <laughs> you know, chase them out with sticks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what the hell? Like, oh, our only options. That, you know, it's like, oh, this is such a, there's such such gravitas. We have to either give him money so he'll leave, or actually make him go through with it. And yeah, like like I remember the scene in Kagamusha where they drive out. They drive out Shingen's Kagamusha from the castle when he's no longer needed. Yeah. They're, they're throwing stones at him. <laughs> that, I mean, they could have just done that. Now, I, I think you could say that that's one of the downsides, or can be a potential downside, of a film that's trying to, to, to make a message, basically trying to get a message across. Like, it, you know, the whole film is basically an anti-samurai film. It's an anti-establishment, anti-authority. And to do that <laughs> you've got to have like very some very very simple cut and dry plot elements and this is I feel like Harikiri the first film and the second film and in somewhat different ways just to say it again you really have to suspend a lot of disbelief to, to really get into these films in my opinion I mean not trying to be like a junior uh, Cisco here but I didn't. I, I mean, I didn't feel like I needed to suspend disbelief consciously, but when I when I actually examine what happened, that's when I really was like, "Wait a second. Yeah, it's a good are story. You, are you serious? You're, so your 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 options are pay him off or have him kill himself with a bamboo sword. Yeah, that, that's that, it. You, you couldn't have you <laughs> chase him out the door with sticks or <laughs> yeah. threw, threw rocks at him from the balcony. Yeah. No, or just tell him to beat it. Or just tell him to get, hit the yeah. bricks. Like hit, the, it, hit the bricks, Ronald. No, yeah, leave. We're not even going to let you in. We can commit suicide and bloody up our courtyard. Are you nuts? You're not even worthy. Well, maybe. See, I, I, you know, I suppose, I suppose in a way that that this is yet a further, you know, portrayal of the whole system. You know, even though he's a lowly Ronin, he's our of our class. So we can't just take someone of our class, beat their ass, and throw them in the gutter. We need no. to, you know, we need to basically do the pomp and circumstance, regardless of what it is. I yeah, suppose. And I, I think mean, that I comes that, up. I think that does come up at some point, I maybe mean, in the first film. That yeah, I mean, that might be that might be it right there. They might be comments. like, he, you know, he's he is of our class, and as a as a as a samurai, you know, he does have the right to ask, and and as the custodian of the e residence while the lord is away, you know, it is our duty to, you know. What, what? Both honor his request and, you know, maintain the dignity of our residence. It's interesting, you know, I never really thought about this before, but, you know, they didn't issue samurai identification cards in those days. Well, I kind of, I, I think there's a, I think it's one of those things, like, you're going to know. I mean, you can't really fake it. I mean, they, they speak differently, they have different haircuts, they got different clothing. They well, they didn't have, I mean, these were, the, and the Ronin in this film, they, these guys didn't look like samurai. They were just sort of grubby, and they didn't have their, they didn't even, they didn't have their, 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 their forehead shaved. They were just, they could have been some merchants, or just some random Ashigaru, or I still feel like they would. I, I still feel like they would stick out. I yeah. mean, just because they speak differently, they 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 act differently, they walk differently, and it's the but, whole. But these are like samurai from Kyushu, not Kyushu, but the the. I mean, they travel yeah. from Hiroshima. I mean, why they would travel all the way from Hiroshima to, to Edo was not really established in the films. I don't think, but unless in, no, I think maybe the 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 whole 
episode went down in the Edo residence. Maybe that's why they just ended up staying. Um, but I don't, I don't, I, I mean, really though, you could just sort of, they don't even have real swords. Like, talk about a lack of credibility. You know, it's like some guy walks in, I, I'm a, I was a samurai, this, the, the, the Fukushima household, and I'm looking for, you know, this or that. I mean, they could have just been a cook in the Fukushima household. I don't know, I feel like kind of, you know, it's like, it's like, look at the, look at the... Well, you got, you have guys passing themselves off as Navy SEALs and shit all the time. That's you know, they never spent a day in the military and somehow managed to pass themselves off as war veterans, and yeah, it's but only you think, years but later. See, that's the thing, though. Is do you think other other Navy SEALs would would know? Well, what if? I mean, what would you know? I mean, what would you know as a, as a random like post war samurai in Edo? I don't know. I mean, I feel I like mean, it's a cultural thing in a way. It's it's what? a it's a class thing. It's a cultural thing. It's what, so. What, I mean, are all of the conventions of the Fukushima House going to be the same as the E? I don't know. I mean, a completely different, um, completely different families. I, I don't know. I just, we're I talking just this image. Probably, I mean, it just you just get this image that the peasants were so far removed from the samurai. Well, I'm not talking about the peasants. We're talking about the, like the the townspeople. Well, I mean, the townspeople they would have been around. Peasant, the, right? <laughs> they would have been around the samurai. They, they could have aped their mannerisms. I'm sure. Well, quite maybe that, maybe that's again. It's sort of the the the, the whole thing of. of the, the society, they were constrained by their perception of how things were because of their society, maybe. Yeah. But I mean, the whole point, I guess my whole point is that, again, you're just kind of, uh, the whole argument that, oh, well, you know, that they, they, they had to make they had to make this offer because, oh, they were samurai. Well, I mean, it just does open up the question of, in that era, there must have been lots of charlatans wandering around pretending. I mean, I know it's mentioned in some of the old books, about people pretending to be samurai and throwing their weight around and so forth. And obviously it was a capital offense. Yeah. If they caught you doing it, I mean, they would cut your head off. But I kind of feel like in the case of like the, you know, you mentioned the people passing themselves off as a Navy SEALs, I kind of feel like if they're, if, if one of those guys passing themselves off walked up to a, a group of actual Navy SEALs, the actual Navy SEALs would know pretty quickly that this guy has nothing to do with them. Right, but if they just go to uh, an Allegiant Hall and it's just Army guys and Marines, they, they may or may not be able to detect him. Yeah, um, I guess, but you know, they, the samurai didn't have an internet to look up all the, the different foibles and and. Uh, <laughs> right. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah, exactly. They, you know, they all they would know is okay. We have this guy. He showed up with bamboo swords. That's a little weird. Okay, uh, he's got bamboo swords. He claims he's a samurai from... He's got a good haircut. He looks, oh, he's got a samurai haircut. Well, they, they didn't even have that. He just had a scruffy topknot, you know. It's like, well, this dude with a topknot and two bamboo swords claiming well, you know, to be even, the former even when he went to the, uh, when he went to the construction site to try and get work in the new the new film, no, the original, when uh, Chiji Wamotome went to the construction site to get work, they're like, well, we can't have a samurai here. What, what are they going to say if I'm, if I'm employing a samurai as a laborer? And they just basically threw him out of the line. Right. I'm just wondering about the reality, like like in real life. Um, again, there there was no samurai identification card. You had the two swords, but it's interesting, especially in the era after. Yeah, right after if, they're, if they're just selling their, if they're selling their swords for food, I, I bet there were plenty of uh, swords to. to that yeah, there were samurai swords floating around. Yeah, exactly. That any any random merchant could just like strap on, get a haircut, tie up a top knot, just you know, walk around pretending he's a samurai, but 
I don't know. I mean, you know, that's the thing too. Is like in the society, it's like if you've got a house and, and you're married and shit, it's like can you suddenly change your profession without your neighbors being like, hey, wait a second, you're 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 Bob the Merchant, you're not Bob the Samurai, right? What is well, this? I mean, what did what did these what did these peacetime samurais even do? They made umbrellas, apparently. Yeah. Well, I mean, they they. It's not like pretending to be a, a nuclear physicist. It's like most of these guys didn't do shit. Yeah, yeah. They, they just basically they they lounged about all day long. It's kind of what the samurai's job was during the Edo period, for the most part. Yeah. And I guess anybody could probably pass themselves off as one. And so, in the era immediately following the end of the Sengoku era or the fall of Osaka, where you just and, and again where the Tokugawa are systematically dispossessing. Tozama families. I mean, you would have had hundreds of thousands, or well, tens of thousands anyway, uh, of dispossessed ronin wandering around, and they're all sort of grubby and unkempt and loafing about. And um, I don't know how you would tell the difference. I mean, what even happened to all those guys? They probably became farmers and merchants. Yeah, I and mean, within a couple generations, they just were no longer samurai. You would have to assume, like supposedly you were supposed to stay a samurai, like there wasn't supposed to be class switching, but obviously I don't think that's very realistic. No, merchants bought into the samurai class all the time. Right, so... I don't know, I mean, I, I kind of feel like it, in a way it's almost like, I don't know, impersonating a police officer or something. It's like, in, in that society, it's just not something you did. I'm sure there were, there were shifty people who did it, but I feel like the vast majority of people kind of told the line. Well, you know, right here in Honolulu we had that a case where that guy right recently a guy impersonated a police officer and tried to arrest four people at a hotel. I think it was Hawaiian Village or something. <laughs> <laughs> and finally the real cops showed up and arrested him. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, the average person isn't going to do that. Oh yeah, that's right. He was making, he was causing like trouble and then the um, security, the hotel security showed up and so he, he said he was a police officer and was putting him <laughs> under arrest. <laughs> oh my god. People are so brilliant. Yeah, but in any event, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think they had legit samurai ID cards, other than the actual swords themselves. And at the by that point, the buying and selling of swords had probably happened so much that, hmm. I don't know. I, like I said, though, I kind of feel like, in, generally speaking, most people would just toe the line because that's what's societally acceptable. Right. Well, I guess that's acceptable. You know, I guess so. I guess so. Um, and it would have been hard. You know, it's not like now where you can basically, if you're if you're dedicated enough, you could spend enough time on the internet to get enough general knowledge of something in your head to kind of fake something, whereas back then it would have been very, very difficult to to get enough uh, insider knowledge to really be able to fake it enough to, I would assume, go into a samurai residence in Edo and basically be like, yeah, I'm looking to kill myself and, you know, I'm, I'm a legit samurai and blah, 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 blah. I, because it, I mean, this was one of the themes of the Seven Samurai in the form of Toshiro Mifune's character. Um, he was passing, trying to pass himself off as a samurai, basically, and he was just uh, using fake, uh, yeah, fake uh, genealogy or whatever. Yeah, it was. using a fake genealogy that he carried around and, and so forth. So it it's interesting. You fast forward to when the fall of the samurai, the fall of of, of the um, Tokugawa, and kind of what happened to all those samurai. I mean, I guess they became businessmen and merchants, and had to give up their swords and or died of consumption. <laughs> died of consumption. <laughs> but I 
Well, I don't know. Like my whole thought is that it's like I, if we're looking, if one looks at it like realistically, the whole, it, I don't know. It just to me, it's, it would be just one more reason why the why the E's response was just even more absurd. Hmm. You know, like you know, we don't even know if this guy's really a samurai. And what if we let him go through all of this crap, and it turns out that he's just some son of a fucking shoemaker? I think, needless to say, it's the most subtle films ever made. Yeah. I mean, the part, I mean, I think the one advantage of the second film is that it wasn't quite as expository. I do remember feeling like that was the biggest problem with the first one, is that he goes on and on and on. So let's see here to go back to because I because I, when I've been thinking about it today, I was thinking about that whole the way that the samurai are perceived in our imagination, and how it is so much tied up around death. Yeah. That I mean, yeah. It is what I think. It's actually perversely the source of the the of, of the of the sort of fascination that the West kind of has with the samurai. Uh, again, more than I don't know other warrior cultures. Yeah. Uh, that, like some of the other, I'm, I'm trying to think of of what other cultures really are uh, uh, kind of have an analogous significance. Nothing comes to mind immediately. I mean, I've thought about that before too. It's kind of like they're, they, these weird ritualized suicides and all these other things that the samurai did. It's like you know, I suppose there could be some sort of like random. Warrior group somewhere that I'm not thinking of. Or, yeah, like or the Zulu, wouldn't, wouldn't have heard I mean, about. But. Most people have heard of the Zulus. Yeah. I mean, that that's kind of in England more. They kind of captured the English imagination uh, for their for their resourcefulness and for their courage. I mean, the fact that they that, that armed largely, if not entirely, with spears, they wiped out a British column at, at one point. But. And and when you know when you think of the Mongols, I think most people are aware of the Mongols, but I don't think they necessarily associate much with them except for oh well they they fucked a lot of shit up. Yeah, I mean they I don't think they they think much in the way of like uh, a feudal structure or anything. Right, like that. you know like what they looked like or how they operated. I think it was just okay. The Mongols were really really bad dudes. I, I think you know the the concept of the European night is probably the most analogous. Right, because I mean, it's it's a structured feudal system. It's not kind of like a warrior culture. It's not. It's, I wouldn't even call it a warrior culture so much as it's a feudal system. And there you go. You've got the feud, the warrior class, which they, is kind of running the show. And they had this sort of um, culture surrounding them. And in the case of the samurai, you could say it was the culture of death, or the stereotype of the samurai who. He he wields a sword in one hand and a, pen and a calligraphy the, pen or, in the other. Or, yeah, 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 a brush in the other. A brush in the other, um, and we're told. And, and in the same vein, we, we sort of imagine the European knight as uh, uh, wielding a broadsword whilst uh, reciting love poetry, basically to the apple of his eye, and, and jousting to catch the eye of of, of his favorite lady at the games. Um, whereas, I mean, obviously in reality. A lot of samurai couldn't even read, yeah. much less sit down and compose calligraphy, uh, you know, poetry calli or, or, or do calligraphy. And the same held for the European knight. They were a lot of them were just these brutish guys who ate with their bare hands and drank a lot <laughs> and loved to club people's heads in. 
and yet we do have these powerful, attractive images in our minds. Like we kind of, I think we want to believe. Like it, it's really kind of a cool idea of again the, the the enlightened samurai warrior who again he he's ferocious in battle and he can slice and dice with his sword and yet he sits in a, a rock garden and and contemplates the the, the clouds rolling by and he uh, you know so he, he's he's gleaned some deeper some deeper understanding of of the, the world around him. And and again, the, the the knight who's you know, just infatuated with some lady at court and and wants to do dare you know daring deeds to win her affections, uh, you know rescuing her or what have you. I mean the, these are these are attractive images that sort of and, and in both cases elevate them beyond the simple fact that their profession was to kill other human beings with bladed weapons <laughs> or maybe arrows and in some cases guns I guess later on but uh, it's it, of course I guess you could say to go back to the films uh, certainly in the case of the first one the director is basically saying samurai culture is bullshit yeah essentially yeah. that um it, the, the, it's self-serving, it's cruel, it's heartless, etc., etc. Um, I don't, I don't know that there's really ever been a film made in the West that really sets out to debunk the mythology of, of chivalry and the knightly tradition. I, 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 I mean, there's a lot of scholarly work and so forth. Um, Monty Python's quest for the Holy Grail, I suppose. Yeah, right. That might be, that might be it. Actually, actually, it's funny. Monty Python is like kind of maybe the most high-profile group, or the, or or the people, uh, the members of Monty Python, in their various projects, or maybe some of the more high-profile uh, um, individuals to sort of seek to debunk the mythology of the knight and so forth. But I wonder. I wonder now, like again, when you compare the you compare the world today to the world. In the, in the immediate post-war years that I, I don't know that there's there's really would be as much of a um, really any impetus to debunk the sort of mythology of Bushido well especially for purposes of selling movie tickets yeah um, and, and I think too you, you sort of reach a point where such especially in the case of a, of, of a society like Japan that's it's very homogenous. Um, when you talk about like the European knight, well, you're talking about knights from all over the place, France and England and Germany and, and Sweden and, and, and this, that, and the other. Um, in Japan, of course, the samurai are theirs very specifically. The Japanese samurai. There, there were no samurai in Korea or Vietnam or China for the most part. <laughs> you know, the samurai were theirs. So. Unless they were sent there by Hideyoshi. Right, and, and never made their way home. Um, the point being that you, you could argue that there's more value, in a sense, culturally, to the mythology in the case of, of a, a country like Japan. And that it's like this, it's sort of, this is part of our national identity. We should embrace it. Um, it's kind of part of what makes us unique. And 
And if, you know, a lot of it was bullshit, well, you know, that's not really important. <laughs> you know, what, what matters is that we're proud to be Japanese and that we're proud of our heritage and um, it's kind of, it helps sell our brand around the world. Uh, so I don't know, you know, we talked about how, it's like earlier, we were talking about how there's not necessarily a lot of Japanese films coming out that really kind of, uh, you know, are particularly cynical on the subject of, of Japanese history in the samurai. Well, I haven't seen the, the Japanese remake of Unforgiven, um, but I'm assuming that it's probably along those lines, although that does take place, I think, in like the late 19th century Japan. Yeah, I think it is, it, it, like around the time of the Boshin War. Yeah. I haven't seen it. I doubt I ever will. I've heard it's basically just a, almost a line-for-line -line remake of the American version. Yeah. So I'm not sure... I guess the cinematography might be worth checking out, but yeah, I, th I, I feel like eh, it's on Netflix and it's streaming. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> I can watch it, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I do kind of feel like there uh, we've kind of reached a point now where maybe there was almost a window of opportunity at the end of World War II to where you could really have kind of debunked. The, the mythology of the samurai, um, the mythology of Bushido, but we sort of passed beyond that window to where, again, like you know, my whole point being at this time, I think collectively in the Japanese psyche, there really isn't any particular impetus to really debunk Bushido. That I think there's more value seen in embracing the myths than in shattering them at this point. Yeah, it doesn't really serve a purpose right now. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, someone with a big budget and an interesting story could could do it, but at this point, does it really serve a purpose? I don't know. No. Um. And there is. Um. It's funny that the thing about Japan today, they're 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 very good at. at uh, oh, the, you know the. Well, actually, this is true. That they the the Japanese and the Australians have one thing in common in my mind. They were extremely good at selling an image to the rest of the world. Hmm. That really, if you like, if you're just an American and you think of Japan, you don't, you don't really think of well. They have this fanatical right wing element in in Japan. I mean, we're talking fanatical, and and they have for decades. Um, that there is a very militant very nationalistic streak in, in some elements of Japanese politics. Like, that's completely, completely shield hidden from the West, in a way. Like, there really is this, um, there is this, like, image of the Japanese as completely docile, harmless, anime-watching, <laughs> sushi-eating dilettantes, basically, I guess, you know, you... Um, and yet, not so much. The same thing with the Australians. How Australia's all hailed and well met, and no, and they, they all they all enjoy their uh, panda garden. <laughs> yeah, then you know they like the beer, they like the shrimp, <laughs> they like to eat the panda garden. And they like to eat a, eat the orange chicken at the panda garden. And blood, <laughs> and the hell with uh, some yank if he's in the way. <laughs> we came all the way to Hawaii to eat a panda garden. And we ain't waiting in line. We ain't waiting in line. <laughs> Back of the line, Yank. <laughs> Back of the line, Yank. <laughs> My experience with Australians in Hawaii. 
You know, actually, it's it's funny mentioning the uh, you know the how not not many films have kind of looked at the the, the sort of uh, broken you know cis caste system the, the the sort of the authority system. But you know, the, just a year after Harakiri was filmed, there was uh, the, the Bushido, the Cruel Code of the Samurai, uh, nineteen sixty three, directed by Tadashi Imai, and uh, you know, basically, it's along the same lines. It's kind of basically showing like uh, oh, you know how. How terrible and inhuman, inhuman the uh, the whole caste system, the whole feudal system, and e- even up through modern times, insofar as 1963 is modern, you know, in Japan with like you do whatever you you whatever must be done to further your company's, you know, to further your company, mm-hmm. further your, further the business that you work for. So yeah, I think there was a, there was a point there was a period in Japan where they kind of did do films like that, but I kind of at this point it almost seems like it's not really even. Who cares? I guess it's kind of at this point. Who cares? Yeah, you know, we everyone knows the system's broken. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, and and again, I think that it's it's uh, mythology. I th- I think mythology takes root when it when it serves a purpose, basically. And again, I th- I think that the mythology of Japanese history, the mythology of the samurai, I think is just it's it's useful at this point. It, it it's useful as far as Again, selling the Japanese image around the world, it's useful to sort of, uh, you know, giving the maintaining a Japanese identity in the face of what has essentially been the wholesale westernization of that country. Um, I think they would probably prefer that the uh, their image around the world was was more Hello Kitty and less, you know, guys with swords. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. At this point. And I feel like, you know, if you're a country, you have to have some martial, a little, some martial tradition on tap in this national psyche. I mean, they, yeah, they, they, they you know, they, they, I know they have their little self-defense force, but, you know, they're, they're building carriers and stuff. Like, they might have to fight a war again someday, and it would be useful to have some, <laughs> have some sort of martial tradition that didn't involve kamikazes and American invasions. But... So you know the, the the only other thing I could say about the I guess the movies and, and everything is kind of just just I, I'm kind of curious. I mean I'm I'm not an Edo period scholar, so I, I don't have an answer. Maybe someone does, but I wonder if something if this concept really happened or if someone actually just came up with this in the 20th century. Like hey, this would make a cool idea for a movie. Yeah, I've wondered um, at the plausibility. I mean, of is, it, it. is it plausible that a, a, a Ronin would go to the the samurai residence in Edo and be like, yeah? My life is terrible. I'm a Ronin. I, I I'm never going to be employed again. I'd like to, I'd like the honor of killing myself here. And then they're like, "Oh, you know what? Uh, th- that's so that's so honorable. I would love to take you on as a retainer." You know, right? And and, and then the whole idea of the uh, what what did they call it? Threatening threatening seppuku or something like that. I can't remember the term they used in the movie, but I know yeah, in Japanese the term. I think it was kyogen seppuku, uh, but. Uh, yeah, they, they had a term for it. It was like uh, you know, like threaten, threatening suicide or something, where the guys would just be like, they, "I want to kill myself," and then they would just give him some money and leave. I wonder if something like that actually went on in the Edo period. I mean, it, it could be something that just absolutely didn't happen, and people at that point would be like, "Are you kidding me? That would never happen." Or, or maybe it did. You know, who knows? Yeah, no. And so I guess if there's anyone in the listening audience who could shed some light on this, feel free to leave it in comments. <laughs> well, I mean, we, you know, it's not like we don't know. <laughs> Travis, for example, who could probably answer that, but um, well, if Travis listens to this, he'll have to leave his comments. <laughs> yeah, if Travis listens to this, he's gonna have to leave it in the comments. Yep. 
Okay, so um, our Edo period team isn't with us. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're we're short an Edo period uh, yeah. team member. Um, but I don't know. All in all, I did like I liked the original a lot. I thought it was really good. Tatsuya Nakadai just brings this like yeah, gravity. Yeah, I, mean, I just role. like him a lot. He's my one of my favorite all time. He's got this this deep yeah, voice, senatorial voice. That yeah. just, and uh, I thought it was very yeah. I, I I did like the original and uh, thought it was really pointed. But then uh, you know I did like the uh, remake too because I, I really thought that the idea of him busting out his bamboo sword and besting all of the samurai in the house for a short time before he got basically <laughs> run through. Um, you know, I thought that was really, uh, I thought that was really effective too, in its own way. Because yeah, in a way it was a watered down version of the original, but I thought that that, that the fact that he used a bamboo sword to basically be like, fuck you guys, this is, this, I, you, you lounging here in your pathetic you know, thinking how great you are because you're samurai, you can't even defeat one old man with a bamboo sword. You know, I, I thought that that had yeah. a point to it too. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely was kind of an interesting take on it. I thought, yeah, I, I, I think of the two of them, I would probably say I, I think the, the first was a better film, a better piece of filmmaking. Um, it has sort of the tropes that you might imagine from Japanese filmmaking of the time. You've got a couple of like the weird camera. Like the zoom in, you know, like yeah, what? and like the the stationary like uh, stationary camera with a long, long, the long, long view, long yeah. angle, and it's very at time it's very expositional. Like when when he's given his whole spiel there, uh, you know, and they're like, "Have you got even more you need to to offer?" Well, yes, I do. And then another fifteen minutes of him kind of preaching. Uh, you know that, that there was that, but I guess that's uh, that's a lot of old Japanese films. Um, in the battle scene, like the cinematography, when they were he was having the duel on to, over the graveyard, when he was up in the hills dueling that one guy, yeah, for his top knot. I mean, just uh, like for black and white, just awesome, awesome cinematography. Like that was, I definitely thought. I I, I think it 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 had a it definitely had a cool overall atmosphere. Um, I, I felt like the second one. I, I guess I really didn't care that much about what was going on with his family. To be perfectly honest, like I, I didn't, I didn't really need to know about his daughter. Like I, it didn't really matter to me. Um, yeah, it was. It was pretty brutal, though. There, I mean, it looked like they were by the end. They were really living a brutal existence of of, of disease and poverty and hunger and everything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it was. I, I'm. I guess it's just I, I like comparing it to the first one. I think the first one, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's you didn't really need to know so much. Like you just, it was enough to kind of infer well they're hard up. Yeah, this, I do this. think uh, uh, Ichikawa Ebizo, uh, who played Tsugumo Hanshiro in the uh, the remake, he he did. I thought he held his own. Although the only thing is, I, I couldn't really. He looked too young to be the, the father of like a twenty-two-year-old. Yeah, I thought so too at the time. Like he could, they could have cast either an older actor or aged him. I don't know. I thought, yeah, aged him a little more, put some gray in that beard. But I, I did think he held his own as far as the actual. I mean, he he, he held his own in. If you had to compare him to Tatsuya Nakadai, I think he 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 held his own. I I don't think he did a bad job. Yeah, and, and Tatsuya Nakadai. I mean, that's that's kind of those, those are some big shoes to fill. Yeah, I would say all in all, my uh, the original Harakiri was is my my second favorite samurai film of all time. Number one being, of course, Seven Samurai because I can watch that movie over and over again and always find something new. And and it's 
I just think it's overall it's it's a better movie because although I do really really like Harakiri, it's not the kind of movie you really need to watch more than a couple times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel like okay, having seen Harakiri, I, I yeah, I don't necessarily know that I need to sit through it again. Um, whereas there are other films like I, I I've seen Kurosawa's films many times, many times. Yeah, I've seen, I've sat through Seven Samurai. Pr- from start to finish, I would say at least five times. At, at, yeah, at least. two or three. From I know at least three times. I've, I've watched some Samurai. I've probably seen Rand four times, Kagamusha three or four times. Um, then there's a reason Kurosawa was one of the greatest directors of all time. He was a. There was a lot to absorb in his films. Um, in fact, I would say with like Kurosawa's films, like you really do it a disservice to only watch it once. Yeah. Um, so I would say, all in all, I like both of them for different reasons. Uh, obviously, I like the first one better, but I, I wouldn't go for, so far as to say the second that the remake wasn't a good movie. It was definitely a good movie. I really liked it. I thought it was it was well done. Cinematography was really good. He didn't go overboard with anything. I thought it had a good pace. It was better, probably a little bit. Pacing was probably a little bit better in the in the new. Yeah, movie. it was certainly more modern. Yeah, uh, you know, like I, I I notice it now more and more, especially as I get older, and even more and more time passes between you know this that early era in Japanese cinema that it's um you gotta have some patience. You really gotta have some patience for some of these old films that uh you know growing up you know being being in the 21st century the pacing and we you do see that you do see that like actually that's one of the interesting things about the the, the two harikiri films as far as comparing them setting aside all the seppuku bullshit and everything else just the differences in pacing and and, and the differences between the modern pacing and the pacing that was mm, kind of more standard i guess for the 50s and 60s and you can kind of just see the differences in filmmaking, how filmmaking has kind of evolved. So that that that's an interesting, and it, it kind of an interesting opportunity uh, with these two films. That being said, though, I actually thought the I wouldn't I don't know if I, w- I wouldn't say the pacing, but the uh, the 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 way they sort of slowly revealed uh, Tsugumo's uh, relation to Chiji Omotome in the original was a lot better, a lot more effective. They, 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 it, it was revealed later in the movie, and it was a lot more effective. And uh, I, I thought, even, although I suppose if the original had never existed, it probably, I probably maybe wouldn't even realize, notice. But I just thought it was done so much more effectively in the original. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I uh, definitely. In fact, you could say like if you haven't seen either film. Then why are the hell are you listening to this podcast? Yeah, for well, thing? we've already spoiled it for you anyway. <laughs> but I would say, like, if I were to suggest it to somebody, I would say definitely watch the first one first. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then watch, then watch the second one. Although I'm, I'm assuming there are a lot of people listening to this who haven't actually seen the remake and have only seen the original. So, uh, sorry for spoiling it. <laughs> yes, but, yes. Uh, uh, but uh, it was, uh, I, I, yeah, all in all, I think they were both good movies. Yes. <laughs> and that's all we got. That's all we got. <laughs> this is a slow week at the Samurai Archives uh, offices. Uh, <laughs> yeah, everyone, yeah, so. Most of the staff is away for the holidays and. But, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much all we got for this podcast. Uh, I, you know, I had I had watched the original quite a while back, and then uh, the remake 
a, a while back, and I kind of gotten that idea in my head for quite a while that I wanted to do a podcast about sort of comparing and contrasting them, which I don't know if we necessarily did a good job at that or not, but hopefully this was a, a bearable podcast. <laughs> I don't have my fingers crossed on that, but we can always, one can always hope. One can always hope, yeah. All right, and that's it for another episode of the Samurai Archives podcast. If you liked this episode, and I kind of hope you did, please consider supporting us on patreon.com slash samurai archives. Every little bit helps, and even a dollar, a mere, meager dollar an episode helps. It helps pay for the podcast, it helps pay for the hosting fees, the URL, the fees for the forum, the fees for the website. Fees, 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 it pays for that. Well, not yet. We still need more contributors to help us out, but hope you consider it. And if you're so dirt poor you can't afford a dollar an episode, which is understandable, I myself am a poor graduate student, all you need to do is turn on iTunes, find Samurai Archives Japanese History Podcast in the iTunes store, and click on a star rating. You don't even need to write a review. Just click on that star rating. That's all we need to get that little bump. But if you do want to write a review, hey, that's awesome too. Anyway, I guess that's about it. So for all of your otherwise Samurai Archives podcasting needs, go to samuraipodcast.com. All right, and with that, we're done. <laughs>